family is a wonderful thing, as you all know. And uh, I think most of you know that the most important single building block of any successful society in the history of this earth has been the family. God's Word is the foundation of all true knowledge, as Mr. Armstrong brought out. And But putting it another way, as far as just human organizations or situations, the, the marriage and a strong marriage and family is the building block of any decent society. And it's very important that we understand that. And even those of you who have been married for years, uh, you still can have problems, as we know this sometimes occurs. We know that our own children and grandchildren, as they get older and have a marriage, as some of my grandchildren are already married, and uh, we can have those situations we have to deal with and we have to understand, and all of us have to help others. So it's the building block of every successful nation. It's going to be the building block of God's society in tomorrow's world. Happy marriages. And marriages, of course, are the building blocks upon which a family is built. We must learn, brethren, to build strong marriages. We've got to really learn that in this church. And I think that's so important. I do want to preach about that from time to time. I did about a year ago. I've not invented any new scriptures, but I have additional information and I hope insights I can give you. And I want all of you to understand this. It's a very important thing. We've got as a church to grow in grace and in knowledge out of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Paul brings that out in Ephesians chapter 4. That's our goal to grow like Christ in every phase, in every facet of our lives. And certainly marriage is a very important part of nearly every normal human life. In 1960, the percentage of marriages that ended in divorce in the United States was 28%. 28%, just over one out of four. By 2000, it had jumped to 50%, nearly doubled. In 1960, the percentage of women in the United States who, quote, saw divorce as the way out of their problems, end quote, was 51%. That is, if they had problems in the marriage, of course. In 2000, it had jumped to 80%. Can you imagine that? And yet women, if things go wrong, they think the solution is to get divorced. Divorced persons is the fastest growing census group in the United States. That's something to think about. The fastest single group of people as they break down different types of people would be divorced persons, a 400% increase from 1970. So we want to think about that. Israelitish nations are among the leading nations in the world in terms of divorce. I just got through visiting China, as some of you know, and you read about the society there. Yes, they have problems, but as you know, the Oriental families strongly stress family ties, and they stay together as a family. And often those families will move into this country. They'll hang together, help each other out, get a little business going, and all the members of the family pitch in and work and work and work. And the spoiled American kids are not taught to work. They're not taught to hang together no matter what. They're not taught to help each other out. They've never learned to work and work hard. And they've never learned to hang in there regardless. They're used to instant happiness, instant gratification, the absor absorption with self. And brethren, we're not called for nothing, the me generation. And I'm speaking to all of you in this room and I'm speaking to you brethren around the world. We're called the me generation for a good reason. 
And a lot of you young people cannot begin to realize the difference in the approach and the attitude that you have compared to the generation that I grew up in. That doesn't make me better. I was helped by that generation just because I was there. But I grew up during the Depression and things were hard. And my father had to work about 10 hours a day. He never attended my football games or basketball games. There might have been once or twice, but I don't ever remember him being in any of those occasions. Was he a bad dad? No, he was not a bad father. He had to work, and I knew that. And a lot of the people in those generations, I see uh, Glenda Stevenson, the Scarborough daughter here, and I'm sure her father worked in this big Ford or Chevrolet plant. I'm sure he couldn't just take off whenever he wanted to from some big plant like that. You just come in the next day, as I found in working for some outside people, and these guys would skip or get drunk, and junior college boys, and come in the next day, and Harry the foreman would say, here's your check. Boy, that was a good lesson for me. He didn't argue with them. He didn't reason. He didn't try to understand them. He'd say, here's your check, about the second time they did that. So you had to work, you had to be there, and you just couldn't take off for any and every reason. If you had a headache, or you had a cold, or you didn't feel that good or something, you just worked. And marriages had to survive, and they did survive in spite of that. And sometimes maybe because of that, because the women were staying at home, and they relied on their husbands to take care of them, and there was a commitment to work, to family, to decency, to honesty, and all those kind of things that is lacking today. It was not the me generation. I've got to have happiness. I've got to have instant gratification. And often young people today enter into marriage thinking, what am I going to get? And brethren, when you enter into marriage, and you who've been married many years think about it as well, you should enter marriage. We didn't all do this. I did it partly because I was already converted and a minister, but I didn't do it perfectly at all as they look back on it. I should have done it much more. And all of us should do it much more as we grow in marriage. You don't go into marriage to see what you can get. You should go into marriage to see what you can give. What can you give to this other human being to help them to enrich their lives and so on? And that is a very important concept. Divorce is a growing problem in the church and in society today. Many fail to grasp the real significance, real causes, true causes of real solutions to the marriage or the problem of divorce. For thousands of years, marriage was the rule and divorce was the exception. Marriage was esteemed and divorce was an evil tragedy. And I remember so well when I was growing up, only two instances in the first 19 years of my life when I heard about someone getting a divorce in our extended family. One was a second or third cousin, and one was an uncle. And my parents spoke of it in hushed tones. Cousin so-and-so is getting divorced. It was like he's gone into a a leprosy colony or something. It was really bad. A divorce. Wow. Today, oh, well, so-and-so got divorced. So what? Well, it's not so what. It's a terrible thing. It's a thing that used to be regarded as a disgrace, brethren, and I hope you can understand and understand that better from God's point of view. In the last 30 years, the traditional family has been radically altered and almost destroyed in the West, that is, in Western Europe, the United States, and Britain, Canada, and we know the Western-oriented countries, even though they're not in the West, but Australia, New Zealand, and so forth, those Israelitish countries that share so much our language, our way of life, our values. 
Today, divorce is increasingly viewed as acceptable and normal. But is it? I think we ought to realize it's just not that way. Just how terrible or destructive is divorce in Western society? Consider the word of these experts as quoted by Glenn Statton in Why Marriage Matters. Here's a divorce expert or marriage expert some of you have heard of. He writes, The scale of marital breakdowns in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent. There has been nothing like it for the last 2,000 years and probably uh, longer. Nothing like it. The breakdown of marriage in that way. Yet we take it for granted. And I want you young people to realize, again, it didn't used to be that way. You know, I didn't grow up in the Middle Ages. I grew up just, you know, 50 years ago. But and that seems like a long time to some of you who are young, I know. But my parents had an even stricter standard. At no time in history, with the possible exception of Imperial Rome, has the institution of marriage been more problematic than it is today. And that's from an expert called Kingsley Davis, a demographer. Imperial Rome, Rome fell. And as some of you read about that, as a number of you have from our articles and so on, that was one reason. The breakdown of the family, it weakened the whole society. From Christopher Lash, another expert, the American family has been slowly coming apart for more than a 100 years. Another comment, this from Judge Edwin Torres, New York State Supreme Court, quote, a society that loses its sense of outrage, that is, at immorality, divorce, and so forth, is doomed to extinction. And that's true. We are doomed to extinction unless we get over that. American culture has become a culture of divorce which abandons the idea of permanence in marriage. Brethren seeking divorce need to be aware of the divorce that divorce offers false freedoms, and false hopes. Divorce often doesn't solve family problems. It deepens the hurt and becomes, uh, takes a wound, becomes a wound that takes years to get over, especially for children. In studying divorce, uh, researchers Paul Amato and Alan Booth came to the conclusion that, quote, at most a third of divorces are so, are, are so distressed that the children are likely to benefit. The remainder, about 70%, involve low-conflict marriages that apparently harm children much less than the realities of divorce. In other words, the children would be better off in a marriage that's not totally happy than if their parents separated. It does something terrible to those children. So it affects not just the people involved, it affects the entire society. Divorcing for, quote, for the sake of the children is a myth. Author Glenn Stanton states, quote, the benefits of marriage, especially the benefits the marriage relationship offers for children, cannot be regained through remarriage. Sociologists and psychologists are telling us that the stepfamily is the most troubled form of family life. End quote. Divorce is the death of a small civilization. Wounds linger for years, especially in kids. Children prefer to limp along with both parents than through a divorce. Even among adults who gain self-esteem, they think they're better off, they're going to be happier, a sense of control and satisfaction in divorce, in their pursuit of self-ratification and resolution of their own emotional problems, they spend less time with their children and do not recognize or are unresponsive to their children's emotional needs. And then we have more quotes showing how in divorced families, why well, the girls become more non-compliant, 
angry, selfish. Both boys and girls become more sexually active, tend to cohabitate. In other words, they get into fornication using biblical terminology and are less satisfied with their lives. Like throwing a big boulder into a small pond, the waves go out and out and out, affecting not only you and the woman or the man you're married to. It affects the children. It affects others in your family, your extended family. It affects the whole community. And with lots of others doing it, it affects the whole society and aids through that wrong example the breakdown of our nation or our nations. United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and so forth. So, brethren, we do need to understand we've got to work on that as a church. If we can build really strong, loving, coherent, powerful families, that will serve a great need then in the work of God and in the church of God to build us as a team to do God's work and build within us the character that we're going to need to be kings and priests in Christ's kingdom. So let's see what our Creator says about all of this. And I'm going to turn again to a familiar scripture. I haven't found any new scriptures that we've never used before. Sorry about that. But this is a very important one to maybe analyze a little more thoroughly than we might have done in the past. Turn right back to the beginning. Mr. Armstrong turned often right back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. God said in Genesis chapter 2 and beginning in verse 15, Then the eternal God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. We're supposed to take care of our environment, not tear it to pieces as we've been doing. And the eternal God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. He didn't mean you'll die that day, but the Hebrew is dying you shall die. In other words, they would die and eventually, of course, die the second death that they kept on. Dying you shall die. They would be cut off from the tree of life. Remember, they didn't take of the tree of evil Brethren, they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so many things in this world seem to be okay. Television programs, music, movies, uh, all kinds of stuff, whatever you want to say, books and, uh, and uh, stuff off the Internet, because it's not all bad. But think about it the other way. Is it all good? <laughs> Very seldom. That doesn't mean you've got to wait for the perfect program or the perfect piece of music, but you'd better weigh the evil and the good because the evil is often dominating over the good in so much of what we see, so much of what we hear, so much of what we think. The evil dominating over the good. It's a mixture of good and evil. And the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. Not good for a man to be alone. He's not as balanced He's not learning certain lessons of giving and sharing and self-subjection, humiliation and so forth that he should be learning. I will make an help or a helper, as it is here, helper, comparable to him. Tremendous lessons in this. The man is not alone. He's not, you know, Superman standing on a peak who needs no help. He does need help. And he's got to realize that. And yet women today are in this women's lib movement, and they don't like to think of themselves as having been made to be a helper to some man. I know there's a book my wife has on marriage, and uh, and she I haven't read it, but probably she has, 
And me, obey him, is the name of it, you know, making fun of that. And a woman wrote the book. Me, obey him. That's what a woman, a lot of women think today. They become women's livers. They don't want to obey their husband. And that's damnable. That's why they said it, damnable, to have that attitude. It's against everything that God intended. So if you're a Christian, you need to understand that. The woman was made to be a helper out of the ground of the uh, ground that God formed every beast of the field and brought them to Adam and he named each one to put different names of this looking like this and that and he gave them names based on that probably because God gave Adam an instant vocabulary apparently probably had a very wonderful vocabulary so Adam gave names to them and he saw the cows and the horses but there was not found a helper comparable for him and as I've said, you know, the cow would come up to Adam and he would pat the cow on the nose or stroke the back of its head or pat it on the edge, edge of its neck or something and say, well, cow, it's a beautiful day. Moo! Oh, nothing to share, <laughs> nothing to talk about. No way the cow could help the man except maybe if the man, if the cow was able to produce milk or he would kill the cow and eat it, but otherwise... No companionship, no sharing, no love, nothing like that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the eternal God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And again, as I've said, some of you get tired of me saying these same expressions, but I do want you to understand it. A lot of people make fun of this, brethren, I by myself, after being in God's church 57 and one-half years and seeing how God's ways work, I deeply and sincerely believe with all my heart that God literally inspired the Bible. That does not prove it to you. I understand that. And I can go through and perhaps should do, even in addition to what Dr. Bonnell has written in his fine booklet on the Bible, so many indications that the great God inspired all these things in the Bible that he dictated it just that way. Yes, he could have made the woman a different way. Yes, he could have made the man a different way. But God is not a liar. And God's Word is not filled with lies. God did it exactly the way His Word said. He did it to help impress on our minds, no doubt, certain lessons. He took part of Adam's body, and they sentimentalized that, but it may be that God did it that way on purpose, right near his heart, perhaps the rib, you know, closest to man's heart, so to speak, and took that part of man's body, the first operation, <laughs> and made that into a woman. He could have taken nothing. He created, uh, no doubt, the universe out of energy, out of spirit. But he did it that way because the woman was not to be created out of man's big toe, that something to step on, not out of the top of his head to be over him, but near his heart, part of him, comparable to him, of his same level of existence. And that picturesque analogy, I think, was meant by God to be that way. Then the rib which the eternal God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones. He could recognize. He'd seen the horses and the cows and the chimpanzees and the snakes and the crocodiles. And he said, oh, I can't be familiar with these, these creatures. He couldn't love them. He couldn't talk to them. He couldn't share with them. 
He didn't want to hug and kiss them and have them lie by him at night and look up to the stars, as no doubt Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, and say, isn't that beautiful, honey? And talk about it in that way. That's right, a good way, a wonderful way, and share everything with them. He couldn't do that. No way he could have that kind of relationship with these animals. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She looks just like me, except for certain interesting differences. <laughs> Very interesting, <laughs> of course. The French say, viva la difference. Long live the difference. And that's not nasty, that's beautiful. God made women to be beautiful to men. And some young men think they've discovered a great new discovery when they suddenly discover that woman's body is beautiful and this and that. And, of course, then sometimes they misuse that and take... They're not discovering anything new. They're just cheapening something that God intended to be part of marriage and a right and a good thing from the beginning. But she should be called Isha. And the Hebrew word, as you see, is printed right in my margin. I didn't print it there. The Hebrew word was Isha. That was the name God gave the woman because she was taken out of Ish. So from the very, very beginning... The woman was described as from man, from man. She'd been part of man, and her name given by God was from man, and she was created from man, from that part of man which is closest to his heart, not part of his big toe or something, but below him, but equal with him by his side, where she should remain and be his helper. That's a beautiful analogy, but I think it really happened that way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, sometimes in Europe and elsewhere, they have to live very near for sometimes long time. Sometimes they do it too long. But ideally, it's better to move certainly to a house at least next door or the farm next door. They don't have to live 10 miles away or 5,000 miles away. Today, our, our, our marriages and our homes are often too scattered, our families, I mean. And I've had my next older son, Jim, living about 20 600 miles way out in Pasadena, California, and, and uh, David and Exy, uh, whose daughter we have here, living about whatever it is, 2,000 miles away in Phoenix, and my daughter Rebecca living about maybe 1,500 miles away in Austin, and my son Mike down uh, maybe six or 800 miles in uh, Florida, and scattered all over. Some of you may have children. Uh, of course, Josh Penman is here, and his parents are whatever it is, 6,000 miles away or 10,000, 10, I guess, whatever, way down in New Zealand. And that's not ideal today to be so far from our families. Sometimes we need to for the work of God's sake and we're a different society, but it's good to be together with your family when you can be, but yet not living right together. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's not a spiritual union but it involves an awful lot of physical things, emotions, plans, hopes, dreams, possessions they share, time they share, everything they share. They shall become one flesh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And God tells us that from the very beginning. They were to be one flesh, sexually and in the whole sense of sharing everything, and not to be ashamed of that at all in any way, and God's not ashamed of it. I know back in the early days, even in Worldwide, we had to be very careful what we say. And I still have to because there are certain little old ladies, as we say, who get offended if you use certain words. But uh, we ought to be able to use sex part words and other things like that in the right way. God's not ashamed of that. He made every single part of us, and all of you know that. 
And I used to think somehow I'd be around older women or even after I became a young man or, uh, you know, and even when I was married and to my first wife, go back to Joplin, Missouri, and some of these old ladies occasionally, not often, but some of them say, oh, I babysat, you know, oh, he babysat me and changed my dieties when I was a little boy. <laughs> and as I got older, I came to realize that most of these women, you know, that you look at and these teenage boys sort of think, well, they don't know anything. They're just a middle-aged woman. What do they know about romance or sex or anything? And, of course, these women might have changed his dieties, and some of them, and they knew all about, you know, men and our bodies and as they had to change their little baby boy and take care of him so carefully over and over and over our little baby girls because God made all of us in his image and God has nothing to be ashamed of that when neither do we but we are to be part of one another in marriage and we are to appreciate each other and we're to appreciate each of us the position of the total oneness which God intended and to think about that, to meditate on that even more than I can openly meditate on it here, that you are to be one, to share, to give, to help, to serve this other human being and enrich that human being's life in every way that you can while you're here. God said that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive, and I'll be reading that later. But, brethren, the, perhaps the best place in this human life, or certainly one of the best places to learn that and to do that is in marriage. You have to share everything. And sometimes when my wife and I are traveling, uh, she'll forget her toothbrush or something, and we end up using the same toothbrush, or we end up, you know, whatever it is. And uh, we can share those things if we need to. It's not nasty, you know, as uh, one minister used to say, we exchange, he used a different word, but we exchange, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, uh, various, uh, and he called it spit, I can't think of the term. But anyway, when young couples don't mind that when they're kissing, and then they get all nicely nice about using the same toothbrush. So what? <laughs> You're exchanging germs anyway when you kiss. But obviously it's better to have your own toothbrush when you can. But you share everything and should have that attitude that we're one. We're one flesh and delight in that. And do not withhold from your mate. And learn that as you enter marriage and from the very beginning of marriage. Do not withhold from your mate physically, financially, and helping and serving and giving to the other person. The man should normally support the wife. But there are times I know Dr. Fall's wife had to help him. He's the one that wrote this wonderful booklet on child rearing that we're, we're offering, parenting. And his wife has told my wife and me that she had to help him for a few years through dental school. She earned the money while he went to dental school full time. So sometimes a woman will support the man for a while to get him going in a kind of a career and that kind of thing. And uh, each helping the other, but the man being the main source of support physically, financially, and certainly sexually, giving to one another, not saying this is mine, no, your body does not belong to you. I used to think that was all a woman's problem. But I found later as I got older, and especially in the last several years, often men have greater problems than women in those ways. That's why we have all these ads almost every night on television, you know, for Viagra and Levitra and all these other things, because men have problems and the women are frustrated. And the men ought to try to do everything they can, of course, to love their wife in the right way and realize that responsibility as best they can, certainly when you're younger and so on, when there is that special need. Emotionally, give to your wife, give to your husband emotionally. I'm talking about apart from romance now. Do you help them through their situations? 
As your wife is in childbirth or coming out of childbirth, she'll have emotional needs. Later on, she'll go through menopause and she'll have deep emotional stress and needs during that time. And you have to be sensitive to that, be willing to put up with that and help her during that period. There are certain times when a man is in need, he has stress, he's lost his job or this or that, and the wife has to be there for him and perceptively try to help him through that situation at that time. You want to help each other, and of course, intellectually too, encourage each other and appreciate each other's ideas and thoughts and hopes and dreams. Do not withhold. Back in Matthew chapter 19, back in Matthew chapter 19 in your New Testament from Jesus Christ, we find this. Verse 3, the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Can you just divorce whenever you want, like the Pharisees were doing and some of the Jews? He answered, Have you not read what uh, that he who made them male and female uh, at the beginning, uh, that he said, "Go uh, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, Jesus added, what God has joined together, once a person or a couple covenants before God, and it is a covenant before the Creator who made us male and female, let not man put asunder. Let not man separate. Now, that's a command of Jesus Christ. It's a very important thing. and Today, we often take that lightly. I remember my wife and me, my first wife, and most of you know this, lest I be misunderstood uh, by anyone. I've never had a divorce. My first wife, Margie McNair, Mr. Carl McNair's older sister, was my first wife for 20 years and seven months. And we had a pretty happy marriage. It was not ideal, but it was very good. And I deeply grieved when she died of cancer way back about 35 years ago. And it really hurt me terribly. So I remarried a year and a half or two years later and have been very happy. And now my present wife and I have been married almost 30 years. So between the two marriages, I've had over 50 years of marriage. So I've had some experience. I personally have had to adapt to do different types of women, two different types of emotions, because they were different. And each one had strengths the other one did not have. And I could say they mutually excelled, as Mr. Armstrong said about the three campuses. But that's been good experience for me. If you're just married to one person, it's sometimes harder to adjust all over again and learn to get along with someone else and try to make them happy and so on. But you have to learn those things if you're going to be happy yourself. If your wife is not happy, you're not happy. And most of you realize that if you have any real feeling for your mate, if they're miserable, you are going to be miserable. So you've got to go on it to think, how can I give? How can I help? So you can't just divorce for any old reason. You've got to think, I have made a covenant before God, and I am going to keep that covenant that I made before God. And you men need to realize that, all you men out there across the world who hear this, and all you women, I am going to keep that covenant with God that I made before my Creator. They said, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And then he said, Moses, uh, for because of the hardness of your heart, you were carnal, you didn't have God's Spirit, permitted 
He didn't command them anything. Moses never commanded, but he permitted them to divorce, to you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was not God's purpose from the beginning that that be the case. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And you know the teaching of the church on these things. There are only three, let's say, reasons, possible reasons within Scripture where people could divorce and remarry. One of them is general fraud. That is, if it can be absolutely proved, and we can be sure, and it should be discussed with the minister, it's not that each one makes up his own mind, but if a man, for instance, marries a woman never intending to be her husband, or if a woman marries a man and is very clearly never ever intended to be his wife, and that could be proved that the, it was a false, it was a lie from the beginning, God never binds things based on lies. And other scriptures we've gone through in the Bible when we made this decision way back in 1976 with Mr. Herbert Armstrong proved that. For instance, I read a whole series of articles in the Los Angeles Times years ago about Gertrude, we'll say. I always pick on Gertrude, no fashion name. <laughs> Excuse me, any of you Gertrudes out there in the church. But let's say Gertrude was over in San Francisco on such and such South, South LaSalle Street, let's say. And when they got the big computers in to the government offices, Social Security and, and government buildings, your government offices in, in the Korean. They didn't do it in the Second World War, but I think the Korean War it was. They finally did that. They found out that Gertrude had 37. It was something like that, upper 30s, 37 or 39. Let's say 37 allotment checks coming to her. And then they checked up and had this investigator come, and they found that Gertrude would go to the bar. She was a B-girl, a girl that hangs around bars and picks up men, and she would come up on the bar stool and caress some man. Oh, how are you, handsome, and, and seduce him, take him up to her apartment, get him to marry her, and then she would stay with him for a few days. And then George, this young kid from Iowa, he's going to ship out and think he might never come back again, so he's glad that he get married and have some fun and so forth with Gertrude before he dies, whatever, if he dies. And so he marries her and ships out. She waves bye-bye, George, as he goes under the Golden Gate Bridge. Maybe she's watching him from the, from the big hotel up there they used to watch. So it was that. Anyway, she watches it. Bye-bye, George. Then she goes back to the same bar and she pictures up Harry and then Johnny and then Jim and then Tim and then Harry and then, you know, all the rest of the guys. 37 and gets their allotment checks. Was she intending to be the wife of these men? Of course not. That's a very simplified explanation. But if something one can prove that they was, there were, never was a genuine intent to marry, then Mr. Armstrong ruled with all of us evangelists, and I was in the meeting, so I know what was discussed, that that would not constitute a genuine marriage. The second reason would be sexual fraud, and that is based upon uh, previous uh, encounters before marriage, and that is a, uh, a fornication that had not been discussed with the other person. So any of you young people or any of you out there that are thinking of getting married and have not been married yet, you want to be open with your prospective husband or wife and let them know about those things openly and not fool them, not pretend to be a virgin or something when you're not. And, of course, that is another reason that would be involved here. And the other is not really just a part of that, too, and that is, of course, constant 
uh, sex after marriage. That is, if a woman is found sleeping with the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and she becomes playing the harlot, or a man runs around with a whole bunch of women, uh, that would then constitute porneia also. Or, and the very word porneia is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when it talks about this man involved with his stepmother, incest. So those are some of the reasons why people could be divorced and remarried, but they're very, very few. Very few cases like that can be genuinely proved and be sure of. And any we have admitted to do that have had those kinds of situations. But anyway, let's understand that, brethren. Uh, God tells us here only those reasons. So whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And his disciples said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They said, wow, if you can't get out of marriage unless something terrible like that, it's probably better not to marry. And I've read a number of commentaries on this, as I used to teach this every year, and I, I don't think the commentaries, most of them understand it. But I think Jesus had a little sense of humor, as God often does, and he's saying, well, okay, if you can't get married that way, then just don't get married. He's saying that some men have to be operated on and be made eunuchs by men, and others make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake, and he that is able to receive it, receive it. And if you can't do it the right way, don't do it at all. And that's true. If you can't accept marriage in that way and be bound by marriage, don't get married. But on the other hand, you're a lot better off, you're more whole if you're married. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say, if you're not married in a physical sense, you're not all there. And if you're not converted in a spiritual sense, you're not all there without God's Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? You're not completely whole because you'll get at this idea and that idea and so on. And that's true. That's a kind of a good analogy. So we want to think through this covenant before God. And he says that you are bound for life. And uh, he says that you should always take your mate for better or worse. Is the old marriage ceremony they used to have on the movies, you know, that you're going to marry them for better or worse in sickness and health until death does us part. And that should be your attitude. And that's very beautiful. That's what you're going to do. I always remember Dr. Clint Zimmerman, and you older brethren will remember him, most of you younger kids will not, but a very fine man, a very dedicated minister who used to be the head of our letter-answering department. We have another very, very fine man today who is Mr. Amon. But Dr. Zimmerman had been a successful chiropractor and came up, came down from Wyoming and uh, to Ambassador College. I guess in his 30s or 40s, he was already a somewhat older man than the normal student to be part of God's work. Very intelligent man. But he was very forceful, and not in a wrong way, but you could tell he was very masculine, forceful, and a leader. Years later, his wife became infirm. I've forgotten what they called it, but she had to sit in a wheelchair, and he had to take care of her. He had to feed her. He had to bathe her. He had to take care of her. And he gave a very touching sermon in the house of God at Pasadena one time. And he says, Bertie used to take care of me and she cooked my meals and pressed my clothes and did everything she could to help me and love me and encourage me and gave to me. And she gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. And he went on. And he said, I took and took and took and took and took. 
And he said, now after all these years, God is letting me give a little bit back. And he said, it's good for me. And it brought tears to our eyes to hear that sermon. Now he was able to give back to his wife who gave to him for so many years. And the way he said it, you knew he really meant it. But you need to go into marriage with that thought. I'm going to give and give. I'm not going to find the first excuse to leave my husband. I'm going to give and give and give. I'm not going to find the first excuse to leave my wife. I'm going to give and give and give and give. And each of us goes into marriage to give and to help and to serve and to lay down our lives for one another. And if you do that, you can have a happy marriage. About 99% of all cases and probably more than that. If you do it with that attitude. And so you want to learn to do it with that attitude. For better, for worse, in sickness and health until death does us part. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians, brethren, chapter 7, you find the Apostle Paul's instruction about the marriage state and about even the sexual part of marriage. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote me about, it, or, which you wrote to me, he says, quoting it here more accurately from the New King James, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now some commentaries have this straight, others don't. Brethren, it's clear to me, and I just say this on the authority of Christ, I'm quite positive it means this. He is, he's not saying it's good, not good for a man to touch a woman because God says it is good for a man to touch a woman if the woman is his wife. He's supposed to. He's supposed to love her, caress her, cherish her, have children with her. Paul is simply quoting them. He said, you guys wrote me. You read the, the epistle to the Colossians, and they were into all of this kind of uh, idea of celibacy, and some of them were getting into this uh, gnosis, you know, knowledge, and the body is bad, and all this kind of thing that these early uh, Catholics were getting into at that time. And so the body and the spirit are two different things. And that's what some of the Corinthians were into. They thought it was more holy not to do anything. Well, if that's the case as the early Catholic fathers begin to come at it, then we'd better all be monks and nuns. If we're all monks and nuns, then what happens? We don't have any problem. After a few years, we don't have any people, in fact, <laughs> to have problems. <laughs> the earth would be desolate. No human beings, all right? No marriage, no, no sex, no human beings. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, Paul says, even though... Uh, it's wrote, they wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good not for men to get into all this wildness and fornication. Corinth was the second center of Diana worship in the whole Roman Empire. They had 400 temple prostitutes. And they call it this uh, something Corinth, Aga Corinth or something, this big hill. I've been there and seen it. They actually carved it out over hundreds of years, and you can see it goes straight up. It's not all rock. They just simply sort of chipped it off. And up on top of this big hill goes up about maybe 30, 50 yards, out in the beautiful Mediterranean moonlight and sunlight too, no doubt, they had all these orgies. They'd have sex orgies, drunken orgies, and they would have these things that were very rotten in the sight of God and use sex as part of their worship to their pagan gods. So people saw that, and they saw, wow, sex is a wild thing, and it gets you into worshiping paganism. It's better just to forsake sex. Paul says, no, not really. Because you still have your human drive, you still have a sex drive, you still have a need for a mate, and everybody ought to have a family. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, you know, if you don't have a mate, then what are you going to do? What do the Catholic priests do today? You just read about it, all the little boys that are abused and so on. 
let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That is what God intended. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise the wife her husband. The wife does or has no authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Each belongs to the other in that way. They belong to the other person. They are one flesh. Do not deprive one another. And he's obviously talking about the sexual union. Again, God is not a prude. God made us male and female. God made that as a very important part of life. Don't deprive one another, except with consent, if you mutually agree for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And if one of you needs to really fast and say, well, honey, is this going to really bother you or upset you if I take a day or two or three off to fast and pray? Well, most very few would say no, but at least let them know and whatever. And come together again. How nasty. No, that's God's comment. Inspired of God, come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In that society, a young man could literally walk out of the house and be meeting prostitutes all up and down the street because it was that common. I remember being in England back in 1954 with Richard David Armstrong, and we lived uh, up at the top of the uh, Park Lane at the Cumberland Hotel and for several weeks, nearly every night, Dick and I would go down to the Dorchester to meet the Armstrongs, and we had to walk through literally dozens, plural, of prostitutes, beautiful girls from France and and Belgium and Holland and Germany and maybe po- not Poland, was behind the Iron Curtain, I guess, but whatever. These girls on the continent were starving to death right after the war for 10 or 15 years. They'd come over to England and become prostitutes. Well, I wasn't tempted by them, frankly. I wasn't goody-good, but I was converted. But you could smell the heavy perfume. And when I saw them, even though they would come up and make their remarks and use sex talk, and I just thought in my mind, frankly, VD, VD, you know, venereal disease. (laughs) I could figure that out real quick. But I wasn't tempted in, in that way very much. They were beautiful girls. And that was the way it was in Corinth. There have been many cities all over where that's the case. And Paul says they're going to be tempted if you don't have a normal relationship with your wife. But this, I say, is a concession, not a commandment. That is, I leave you permission to separate for a while. I'm not commanding you to. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift of God, one in this matter and another in that. Some are able to be celibate, Some are able to be like the Apostle Paul, you know, and just go on their own and not be married. And that's fine if they really can. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Once they've been married for a while and they've had that experience, maybe it's better to stay the way they are. But if they cannot exercise self-control, if you have this strong sex drive or the emotional drive, you just need someone else around and not just sex alone, but the whole thing. You're lonesome and you're lonesome and lonesome and you need a mate, you need a companion. It's not just all sex, and I think most people understand that. Let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So God tells us that, and it's very plain about these matters in the Bible. He wants us to have a mate. He wants us to have a sexual partner. He wants us to have a sweetheart. He wants us to be happy in that way. And he is not a prude. He made us male and female. And that was one reason. 
So let's all understand that and learn the mind of God and give ourselves to each other in marriage and not hold back in a wrong way at all because that is sinful. So we need to be perceptive, brethren, of our mate's needs, sexually, emotionally, and all these other ways to think, what does my husband really need? What does my wife really need to make him complete, to make him happy in that way and always? Back in Acts chapter 20, turn there with me again to this very basic scripture. I've already quoted Acts 20 for 35. Paul says after he's shown them how he worked day and night as a tent maker to help them, to serve them, he said, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you may support the weak, or you must support the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said. And here Paul gives us these wonderful words decades later. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's so important. That whole concept is more blessed to give than to receive. And I repeat again, what particular institution or situation or way of life forces you, if you're going to make it work, to give and give and give all day long? Maybe your job might in a limited way, depending on what kind of work you do, but marriage certainly does. You wake up in the morning... And if you're happily married and normal and if something is wrong, you've got someone right beside you, your husband or your wife in bed. And that's the, the day starts right like that. Are you thinking what's good for them? Do you immediately poke them in the ribs and wake them when they're soundly sleeping? No, let them sleep. Don't wake them up unless you've got a tremendous unusual problem of some kind. But you know what I mean. You want to be con concerned. You want to be perceptive of their needs. And then you quietly go to the bathroom or go out and get the paper, whatever you do, and try to take care of them all day long. When you men, when you leave for work, do you thank your wife after breakfast? Do you kiss her and say, thank you for breakfast? And then kiss her when you leave? And then think about her during the day, perhaps call her during the day, pray for her during the day, picture her in your mind as the most beautiful thing in the world. I try to do that. I don't do it perfectly at all. But that's something Mr. Herbert Armstrong taught us. He said a number of times, he said, try to present your wife to yourself as the most beautiful girl in the world. And that's not hard for me because my wife is very beautiful to me. And some of you think, well, she's, you know, she's old and she's not beautiful. That's tough for you, but it's not tough for me. <laughs> to me, she's always 15 years younger and absolutely beautiful. So I still think of her as the most beautiful girl in the world. And I can tell her that I love you and, and I love to kiss her after breakfast and then try to kiss her again before I go to work and kiss her when I come home from work and sometimes call her during the middle of the day to see how she is and pray for her during the day. And some young couples may even talk for a while on the phone during the day, not just briefly, but every day as they're building their marriage and getting better acquainted depending on the need and where they are and what kind of work they do. But you need to do that when you come home at night. Again, kiss your wife. And your wife, you learn to be kissable. Kiss your husband. <laughs> I remember one young woman I was counseling years ago, her lips were all chapped and kind of uh, bad looking. And I thought, ooh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Deborah, her name was not Deborah. But I said, you need to get some, uh, you need to get some lip do so you'll be more kissable. And uh, so on. And, uh, you know, I, I just realized I wasn't interested in her myself, believe me. But... Uh, <laughs> 
at any rate, she did did uh, do that. And I, I, because a husband wants to look at his wife and think she's very beautiful and uh, wants to kiss her if he's normal, and so she should make herself kissable. And uh, and you build that. One of the older ministers, not Mr. Armstrong, but had a good marriage. Frankly, he later left the truth, but he had a very good marriage, a very highly intelligent man. He said, never let the romance go out of your life. Always keep the romance in your marriage. Do little things and think about romance. And that was good advice because you can get so busy. I've got to do the work and I've got to write this article and take this trip and this person's sick and I pray for them and you're down on your go-go and you know, and then fasting. You don't think, well, my wife over here needs love. She needs encouragement. She needs romance. She needs, not when I talk about sex, I'm just talking about love and kindness and tell her she's beautiful and take her out once in a while and buy her flowers or do things for her. And a woman has emotional needs and some of you men out there don't realize that women really are different. They're not just different in their physical structure of their body. Their minds are different. Their emotions are different. And that's beautiful. My wife can just absolutely hover over and, and love and just give and give and give to our little granddaughter even now or to our children as they grew up. And my first wife the same way. And just love them and love them and love them. Well, I love them, but I think I've got to go off to work and I can't just sit here and listen to some squalling kid. You know, <laughs> oh, he's hurting. And she, to her, that's a huge thing. And as you look back on it, that's beautiful. Man alive, I'm glad my mother was that way. Or I might not have been, I might not be here if my mother hadn't have taken care of me over and over when I came in from the rock fights with my friends or the the miners sons out west and they'd come by yeah 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 and they'd throw rocks at us and we'd throw rocks at them and she has to wash the blood out of my head over the sink and so on and uh, i've told you about these scars i've got from rock fights well mother just took care of me again and again and again all kinds of situations and she had that compassion my dad wasn't against me he loved me he was a wonderful father but he didn't have that same feminine something to just want to give and help in those ways all day long and if the wife can not have to work, which is ideal, by the way, as soon as you can get that done and work that work out in your marriage, then she can be a full-time mother, and that's the ideal thing. But try to try to have that attitude of really giving and helping and serving and building a romance in your marriage all the time. You husbands, think about your wife's needs. Try to take her out once or twice a week if you can. Some of you are younger. You don't have a lot of money. You say, well, I don't have a lot of money. I can't take her out to some fancy restaurant. No, I know that. I remember when I was first married back in the early 1950s or mid-50s. Well, we didn't even get her paycheck a lot of times. We'd have to go to Vern Matson and beg for our paycheck. So we didn't have money. But I would take my wife out walking. And I remember walking out of the moonlight night after night and just walking and talking and holding hands. And we'd go hiking up in the hills. And I didn't take any money. And we'd be doing all kinds of things that were free. And uh, sometimes go to free concerts they had at the library or at the civic auditorium or places like that. You can find things that are very nice to do that don't take a lot of money. And if you can find a decent movie and you have enough money for at least for moving a popcorn, well, that's kind of fun. Uh, some of us older guys are recreate your high school feeling all over again just to go and sit in a movie and, and uh, eat popcorn and like you did when you were in high school with your girlfriend. But you don't have to do something expensive. You can just go down to the ice cream store and get some ice cream. My father was poor, basically, during the Depression. 
and we didn't have money. How often did our family eat out? Once or twice what? My family today eats out once or twice a week. But back then we ate once or twice a year. Once or twice a year. And we did not feel put upon, but we would go once in a while and have ice cream and to go on Daddy's old 1932 putt-putt Buick and go off here and get some ice cream. Well, that was a big deal, so that was fine. And uh, got us out of the house, and we knew they were trying to do something for us. But anyway, try to take your wife out once or twice a week and give her that change, that emotional change and geographic change, and uh, do what you can to make her life full. And as you're able, brethren, and I'm talking to not most of you here older folks, I know, but we have some younger people are getting married and some of you have children, try to get a babysitter once a week if you can. You can't always. I was spoiled in that way, frankly, during the most of my marriage because I was always around the college. And even the last few years, as I've told you, when I leave the house, not as much recently, but up until two or three years ago, I'd say, well, honey, I'm going over to the campus. And Charlotte would say, there isn't any campus. Oh, yeah, that's right, no more campus. So we don't have a campus anymore. But that's where I worked, the campus in Pasadena, the campus in Bricketwood, the campus in Big Sandy. And so we would have all the college girls. And, of course, I was their teacher, and they were glad to, I guess, make points of the teacher. And they would, uh, they would be babysitting for us, and we were very blessed in that way. But there are a number of younger women in the church and even some middle-aged women who would be happy to help you as a young couple and not charge you some big fee, and most of them would probably be glad to do it for nothing if you asked them in the right way. Have a good smile. If you can, The curl of your lip it can be just, just right. They'll probably say, okay, and they'll babysit for you. And uh, that's a great blessing for a young couple to get out once in a while where the wife does not always, always just have to have the baby There are certain needs she has during that period of time, and if she has two or three little squalling children and can never get out on her own, think about it. She needs to get away once in a while. She's giving and giving herself all day long to those kids, and she needs a change. You husbands try to give her that change the very best way you can and tell her you love her often and be sure you get down on your knees and thank God for her and present her to yourself in your own mind as your beautiful wife and think of all the things she does do for you so that you can feel that way and be that way sincerely and tell her a lot of men don't talk very much they're too quiet and their wife is not able to share with them and they want their husbands to tell them something once in a while tell her you love her and certainly build this atmosphere of marriage this atmosphere of romance i was talking about in your marriage as best you can, of a right amount of hugging and kissing and caressing and just let them know you really love them and build that joy as a young couple of sweethearts together now that you're married. Don't give up on that. Again, uh, we want to be uh, recapturing God's way of life in every phase of our lives. So listen, all of us, and try to do this. Share your desires, your needs, your hopes, with your mate. That's so important. Uh, Back in this book, and I've quoted from this in sermons back years ago and perhaps again recently and used it as, I think, part of it in my booklet on marriage. It's a very wonderful little book. It's a small book. It's still in the bookstores. It's called To Understand Each Other by Paul Turnier, To Understand Each Other. And he was a Swiss psychoanalyst, very 
a Christian one, though, in that particular way of the Protestant Christians, very sincere. And he's talking here about how uh, a full understanding of each of your mate depends partly on your background. You should try to marry someone with a somewhat reasonable background if you marry across wide cultural differences and religious differences and everything else, it's going to be hard. What really counts then is the working out together, the working out together of marital happiness. It is a goal to strive after, not a privilege gained at the outset. And to work it out, the ability to understand each other is essential. So-called emotional incompatibility is a myth invented by jurists, or let's put in there the word lawyers, (laughs) lawyers, short of arguments in order to plead for divorce. It is likewise a common excuse for people to use in order to hide their own feelings. I simply do not believe it exists. This man has been a very famous man to counsel people as a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and a marriage counselor. There are no emotional incompatibilities there are misunderstandings and mistakes, however, which can be corrected when there is a willingness to do so. The most frequent fault seems to me to be the lack of complete frankness. I see many couples behind their difficulties. I always discover this lack of mutual openness, a loyal and total openness to one another, without which there can be no real understanding." A couple who are courageous enough always to say everything will without doubt go through many upsets, but they will be able to build an ever more successful marriage. On the other hand, all dissimulating becomes only the portent and the way toward failure. Uh, many couples no longer realize that they're hiding a part of their real feelings from each other, a part of their ideas, convictions, and personal reactions. Upon entering my office, one husband told me quite sincerely, quote, I certainly talk everything over with my wife, end quote. Afterward, Dr. Turnier says, we talked together about many things which interested him vitally. Then I asked him, what does your wife think about all of that? Oh, was the blurted out reply, I would never mention these to her. She wouldn't understand. Oh, he says, I talk about everything. And the next breath, he says, she wouldn't understand. He continues, quote, she wouldn't understand, end quote. In other words, she wouldn't share my opinions and I want to avoid any argument. Thus, it is that in order to have peace, many couples put aside certain subjects, those that are emotionally charged, those that are most important for their coming to a true mutual understanding. Thus, bit by bit, the transparent window which the relationship between man and wife should become has becomes blurred. They are starting to become strangers to one another. They are losing the total openness, which is the divine law for marriage. And he goes on and describes how we are to become one. So, brethren, think about that. Many of you have heard me, some of you older brethren in the past. I've started a number of marriage sermons and articles with that very thought. And that's been my experience as I've counseled. I think I could say hundreds of people about marriage, including those on the baptizing tours and the dozens of young couples that I counseled and then performed their marriage and then counseled some of them later. And the most common complaint that I found in the marriage through the years was not sexual incompatibility, although that's important, 
not financial incompatibility, which is becoming more important now, by the way, as people are getting in hard times financially and don't know how to manage their money, but the fact that the husband would not talk to the wife and the communication broke down. And many dozens of women have told me, some with tears in their eyes, he just won't talk to me. I don't feel I know him. He doesn't tell me what's on his mind. He doesn't share with me. And I feel I'm over here in a different world and he has his friends and his ideas at the office or the work or whatever, but he won't share them with me. And they feel alone. And when they're alone at home, if they're a young woman and have children, they can't get out and mix around and talk to people all over the office. Perhaps you can here or you brethren around the world work elsewhere and have those friends. But maybe the wife is at home alone. She needs that. And so quite often, when I come home, again, I don't do it perfectly. I don't tell my wife every single bad thing anyone has told me, but I try to be very open about my day and just kind of go through the day. And we did this and did that and such and such and try to share with her so she shares with me. And we can understand each other in that way. And you ought to do the same thing, and all of us ought to do it more. Talk to one another. Share with one another. Give your life. Share your life with this other beautiful person that you chose to be your mate and that you want to be with and make a success of this marriage, not just for your sake, but for God's sake, because He made you and He wants you in His family and He wants you to learn these lessons. That is very, very important. So I hope that all of you can do this and work on this a very great deal. Wives, be sure that as you newer wives get married, And you older wives perhaps could want to work on some of this. I'm not preaching at you, but there may still be problems. But I found over the last 10 or 15 years that there are literally hundreds of young wives, even in the church, who've never been taught by their mother how to cook, how to sew, how to keep house, how to be a wife. They just grow up and somehow they don't know this. And their husband comes home and they think everything's going to be fine and and the wife has never been taught that. Wow! Again, I've been blessed because I married two country girls. My first wife was a farm girl, Margie, and grew up on the farm. And my second wife grew in a small farming town and had to pick fruit and knows what that's like and do all kinds of things and learn to cook for the whole family when she was just 9 or 10 years old. So I've been spoiled in that way. But some of our men are not spoiled in that way. So you wives, think about that. Try to learn how to cook, to sew, to clean house, to take care of a child, to change diapers, to do this and that. What cleaning fluid is best? What is best for this or that ailment if a little child has it? And all that kind of thing. And try to, you mothers, help your children. Help your granddaughters if need be to learn these things. Learn to help and encourage your husbands, you wives. You're to be his helper, as we read. Help him encourage him when he comes home not just let him kiss you and you well you said well you can just kind of stand there like a, a signpost no hopefully you'll come into his arms and kiss him kiss him back kiss him back and encourage him let him know you love him and he's attractive to you and that's very important so that he can be encouraged in every way so try to do those things and try to make yourself his sweetheart in every way you can, to be beautiful and to be clean and to have pretty hairdo, not that it can be that way all the time, but the best you can. And try to obviously uh, wear a special dress uh, from time to time and even have something special as often as you can. Greet him at the door as he comes in, as he should greet you at the door after work. 
and try to submit to your husband. God tells a wife to submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. Learn to do that as a Christian thing, that you let him take the lead. And you tell him you want him to take the lead. You show him by your actions. You pray that God will guide him to be the leader and not resent that. Try to be on his team and think of yourself as being part of his team. And certainly if he needs advice, if you're on his team, as all the people in the office know, well, I hope they know. I probably don't do it perfectly, but I try to get multitude to counsel. When we make any big decision, I'll go around and talk to a whole bunch of people. And uh, certainly if something involves your wife, you ought to talk to her about it, you men. If you're going to buy a refrigerator, that ought to be perhaps more her decision than your decision. That's part of the kitchen where she works. But even when I buy a, a car or certainly if we buy a house, we do it together. And I've never disagreed, or my wives have never disagreed with me. We do it together, any major thing. We talk it over, and I make the final decision. But it is something we've agreed and talked over together. Mr. Armstrong used to tell the story about the old southern judge. And he said, well, he said, you know, the man is to be the head of the woman, uh, Reverend Armstrong, I think he was a preacher, and so on. He says, well, my wife and I agreed on that at the beginning of her marriage. And he said, I, we agreed at the very beginning of our marriage that I would make all of the big, major, important decisions. And he said, she agreed with that. And he said, we better had a very fine marriage now for 42 years. Fortunately, no major, important decisions have ever arisen. <laughs> so he, he kind of whipped out on that one. He let his wife make all the decisions, and therefore they had peace. But, of course, you men will have to make some decisions. It doesn't always have to be the end of the world decisions for you to make it. Nevertheless, you should make it in concert with your wife, taking her needs into consideration. And if my wife wants a different refrigerator than I want, then I nearly always yield to her wishes because that's what she's going to have to work with, not me. The, the, the kitchen range or the dishwasher, that's her business, not me. I don't do all of that. So think of those things and try to have her input a great deal. But learn to submit to one another, but with the husband as the leader. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes on this, and he concludes a section here earlier, as you know, about uh, speaking to one another in psalms and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart and giving thanks to God the Father, submitting to one another, Ephesians 5, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. All of us have to submit to one another in the fear of God. And I have to submit to some new person in the church or some young person occasionally, one of my children even when they were younger, grandchildren, if I'm wrong on something, well, I try to change and do what they want or need or if they're right and try to acknowledge that. Again, I don't do it perfectly, but we should all be willing to do that, not that we're so important we can't. Submit to one another. But the basic thing, he goes on here, verse 22, wives, and this is part of the marriage ceremony. And you women married in the church, you all know that. You just said amen to that when you were married. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to who? That man? No. As to the eternal. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because Christ is watching you. Will you submit to your husbands as to the Lord? Think about it. You've got to really learn to do it and do it right. Do it from the heart. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head, the real head and leader of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, and frankly, brethren, all of us, including all of us ministers, need to obviously pray more and study more and fast more and ask God, Father, help us to be more sensitive to your will so that we can angle this part of the work and that part of the work more perfect the way God would want us to and have all the doctrines perfectly straight and honor God more in everything we think and say and do. And we really need to do that. All of us do. But in marriage, a wife should try to submit herself to her husband, you see, in that way, just as the church is subject to Christ. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, God does give the one exception, and I think you wives all know that, God says back in the book of Acts, you know, Peter and John told the, the Jewish uh, council that uh, we must obey God rather than man. So if your husband tells you to kill someone or break the Sabbath directly, not that you try to become a super strict Pharisee just to get out of something or to do something wrong, to lie or steal or whatever, you must obey God rather than man. But that would be the only exception. Any normal thing your husband wants you to do, you should do that. And frankly, if uh, I've never done this, but I've used this on my wives to help them, and some of you, of course, it's amusing, and and, uh, and uh, you might not do it just that way, but the attitude ought to be there. If your husband, some of you new wives, if your husband says, Honey, you just go jump in the lake, then Joanne, or whatever your name is, you ought to go and put on a swimming suit and come back through the living room. And he said, what's going on? You said to go jump in the lake, and that's what I'm going to do. Oh, well, I didn't mean it that way, you see. So if he really tells you to go jump, it might be good to do that once in a while, just to show total obedience, you know, thinking hopefully he'll stop you before you jump in the lake, especially if it's icy water at that time of year. But have that attitude if he tells you to do something within God's laws. I'm partly kidding, but the principle is true. You should obey your husbands in the Lord. Husbands, you have responsibility. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, if Christ loves the church as the great God of all wisdom and all mercy and all power, He does not tell the church to do anything that would hurt the church. You know that. And so a husband should never tell his wife to do anything that would hurt her or bring reproach on God or on them and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. He wants the church to be beautiful and clean and white and beautiful. That doesn't mean a husband's trying to clean up his wife spiritually, by the way. Uh, scriptures interpret this. The husband, I mean, excuse me, the wife may be closer to God than the husband in many marriages, and we know that. But nevertheless, Christ wanted the church to be completely beautiful and clean, and a husband ought to make his wife that way as best he understands it, that he might present himself to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So when you understand that your wife... Physically, mentally, emotionally, once you're really happily married and strongly married, is part of you. 
And if she's unhappy, and if she's lying over there kind of like this, shaking, you know, and mad, or she's crying, what does that make you feel like? You're hurting too if you love her. You've got to say, well, what's wrong, honey? What did I do wrong? Well, maybe you did something wrong. Maybe it's simply her misunderstanding, or she's too sensitive, or too this, or too that, but maybe you contributed to it, and you need to understand that. And both of you have responsibility to get at the root of the problem by talking about it, sharing, giving, helping, forgiving. Another important part of marriage is not just giving, but forgiving. You've got to learn to forgive each other and forgive each other, as Jesus said, unto 70 times 7. And when you get up to 490, then you've got to go above and beyond to 492 or 3 occasionally, as you know. It's just a principle. 7 times 70 to give each other and to forgive each other. That he might present it a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So husbands ought to love their wives, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, because all over the world... As my wife and I have gone on a number of trips, and I got to think of it, even on this trip, I really did. It just hits me once in a while as they get older and try to look at young couples, perhaps more like a grandfather or great-grandfather. Here are the young kids in Australia are, are going along the wharf and holding hands with each other. And here are the kids in the Philippines. The young couples are kind of playfully cavorting with each other. And over in China, the young couples together, a little man, young man and a young woman, all over the world, all over the world, all over the world. And it's so beautiful to have someone to love you, someone to share with. It is not good for a man to be alone. And I was so, so grateful later that I could have a beautiful wife to talk to, to take walks with, to share with, and so on. And I've been very blessed during most of my life ever since for over 50 years to have that kind of companionship. Let's deeply profoundly appreciate our wives and all they do for us. And you wives, I hope you can deeply and appreciate your husbands and love them, encourage them, help them, and that we can thank God who made us male and female and that with His help and with His Holy Spirit, we can truly dedicate ourselves to build strong marriages, strong marriages to reflect the love that Christ has for the church and the church has for Christ and build that kind of character, that kind of consistency, that kind of loyalty in our lives to help prepare us for the kingdom of God.